0: All right, as we look this morning and we begin and, and continue, um, we I, I want to take just a few moments this morning to kind of go back over some main thoughts from last week so that we're uh, kind of introduced into uh, how what we learned last week should look like in practice um, on a weekly basis or on a daily basis really in each of our lives. I, I have uh, found that over the years, uh, of my life that many times we do things without ever really stopping to think about why uh, or to examine um, how we came to do them um, and what the purpose of them, uh, of the things that we do is. Sometimes it's easy to just kind of fall in line with what's always been done and move forward. Uh, but I, I love the verse in Romans that, that asks the question, but what saith the scripture? Uh, and so, you know, there are a lot of things that that we do that we do because of tradition. And I, I like tradition. I'm a traditional person. I like uh, we have a lot of family traditions, as I'm sure that you do as well. Uh, but on the other hand, sometimes traditions out you outlive their usefulness. And they, uh, in our case, our family's gotten to the point where there are some of the family traditions that we practiced for uh, all of the 30 years of our marriage that we've just kind of grown out of and they're just not practical uh, anymore. And it's been helpful at times to stop, to reevaluate, why do we do this? How do we do this? And what uh, is there, you know, perhaps a, uh, a more efficient or effective way to accomplish the, the, the thing that we're trying to accomplish? And I have found myself as a pastor um, over the last probably 15 years or so, increasingly coming to the point where uh, I love a lot of the traditional things that I've always done, but I don't want to be afraid to not lay the Bible to it and find out, hey, what does the Scripture actually say about this? Uh, And so, having said that, um, as we learned last week, what I wanted to do, because honestly in all the years that I've been in church, I don't know that I could ever say that I've heard. Uh, a sermon, or maybe if I have, maybe one or two that was just dedicated to the idea and the concept of what worship and praise biblically is. Uh, I know that the, the sermons have been preached. I've heard at times, man, that when somebody preached this, it was just such a rarity that it was noteworthy. Um, and so God's been working in my heart for several weeks. And last week we finally began Um, And I don't know that we'll continue this beyond this week. I guess we'll see how far we get today. Uh, But we started last week in Genesis. Uh, I was fascinated that Genesis chapter 22 is the first time that the word worship appears in the Scripture uh, in any form. Uh, Worshiped does not appear until about two or three chapters after that. Now, God is worshiped and men worship prior to Genesis chapter 22, but the first time that the Word is recorded and given uh, in in a context of activity that has taken place does not occur until Genesis chapter number 22. And so just briefly this morning... Uh, so that we get our mind on this thought and where we're headed today, uh, we learn three primary things from the life of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. If you're unfamiliar uh, with the reference, Genesis 22 is the story of God coming to Abraham very late in his life, uh, when Isaac is, a, in, in all likelihood, a, an older teenage boy, uh, and it tells him, "I want you to take your only son." Now we understand that he had other children, but he is the only son that the covenant that God has walked with Abraham, the cutting, the covenant of the cutting uh, that is non-breakable. And then God walked the entire covenant. Abraham didn't walk his half, typically they would walk in the sign of infinity, Uh, they would start back to back, they would walk the sign of infinity and come back face to face and agree in this covenant. God walked the whole thing because everything that God is promising, God is going to do. Uh, And so everything is dependent upon God. And it's that way in our salvation, which this is a picture of, that everything is dependent upon God. My salvation, my destiny, being in heaven, has absolutely nothing to do with me and everything to do with Jesus Christ. It has everything to do, uh, all I could do was recognize my sinful and my hopeless and my helpless condition and put my faith and trust in Him and what He's done for me uh, to birth me into the family of God and to become my Savior. And so... We see a wonderful picture of Jesus' sacrifice in Isaac in Genesis 22. So God comes to Abraham uh, and he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, the only one that can fulfill the covenant, I want you to take him to to the mountains of Moriah and I want you to offer him there a burnt sacrifice. And so uh, we know how Abraham then uh, immediately obeys God. And what we learned there was that worship is an act of passionate faith. It is not casual. It is not meaningless. It is not a lifestyle. It is an act of passionate faith. Abraham immediately got up the next morning, early in the morning, and got ready to fulfill and to obey the command that God gave him. He did not question it. He did not argue about it. He And we know because of the record of Hebrews that the thought process of Abraham was is that if God actually requires this of me, this is the only one that can fulfill the covenant, the covenant cannot be amended, then God has to raise him. It was the only logical explanation in Abraham's mind. And, his, and my point is this, his faith was so intense and so great that the illogical was logical, that his assumption was the impossible, that what he counted on was that God did not have to explain himself to him, he just simply had to trust God. And so it was a passionate faith. Now, we know that immediately he got up, he got the donkey, he loaded it down, he clave the wood, which means he basically, it was cut, it was split, it was prepared to go on an altar ready to be lit. He took fire already made, and kept it alive as they made their journey they made the journey it was not a short journey though it wasn't exceptionally long it wasn't an hour trip it was days into the wilderness they went to the mountain abraham looked at the others and he said i want you to stay here uh, as a- isaac and i go up until we return again he expresses his faith we Are going to return. Uh, It was never in Abraham's mind that Isaac wasn't coming back with him. So that's an incredible statement of faith. And so we see it's an act of passionate faith. Secondly, we saw that it was an act of preparation. And that's what I've been describing. He prepared the wood, he got the fire. Worship requires preparation. We cannot come together this morning. And adequately and properly and biblically worship God if we entered this place unprepared. No one that knows Jesus Christ as their Savior should ever walk through the doors of a church building into a service with known sin in their heart and their life with a broken relationship and fellowship with their Heavenly Father. All of that should have been resolved before we entered the doors because we came here to worship God. We came here to praise the Lord. I cannot worship God with sin in my heart and I cannot praise God with a broken relationship with my father. And so we see in Abraham and Isaac there there is an act of passionate faith, that there is an act of preparation Their heart and their hands were prepared and they were purposed to obey whatever God required when they got to the top of the mountain. And then lastly, we saw uh, that it was an act of praise. And we see that God was working and Abraham uh, says, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. But the literal translation of the word is the Lord will see to it. In other words, the Lord will see to that ram coming up the back side as you're leading up this side in faith. The Lord will see to all of your needs being met, all of the that's necessary being provided. Uh, God will provide everything that's necessary to one who walks in obedience to his command and in fellowship with him. And so last week we learned those three basic primary facts about uh, biblical worship. Now this morning I want to consider how does that manifest itself in our life today? What is that supposed to look like? What is that supposed to be like when we come together and when we, uh, when we worship the Lord? And so I'm going to take a few minutes here and just define uh, the primary terms here. What's going on in our text and, uh, and we don't have time to read. There's about three chapters or so here that cover this and, uh, and we, we don't have time in this setting to read all of that, uh, that text. David has a burden to restore the Ark of the Covenant to its rightful place. Now, the Ark of the Covenant under King Saul was taken by the Philistines. It was captured, uh, it was taken, uh, and then it was returned. God cursed them and a lot of things happened to them. They returned it. It was brought to the home of a man uh, named Obed-Edom uh, and it was left there for a period of time. David becomes the king. David has a burden, in heart, a burden in his heart to restore worship, to restore the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Ark of the Covenant was significant because the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of their their forgiveness of their sin. Their atonement for their sin was made once a year uh, and the only person that could enter the presence of that was the high priest of Israel. And so uh, the tabernacle, which was set up in the Old Testament in the time of Moses, was basically a rectangular tent. When you walked into it, you came to the brazen altar. That's where all of the sacrifices of the animals and the meal and things of that were made. Uh, when you walked beyond that, there was the laver. And the laver was a place where the priests would go and they would ceremonially wash uh, their hands before they dealt with the altar and before they went into the holy place. Now, when you walked into the altar, and the Bible does not tell us about this, but uh, but Jewish tradition does, there was a place off to the right that was called the hand of God. It was that looked kind of like a trough. It had three spokes on one side and two on the other, shaped like a V. And they would bring in their annual sacrifice for their sin atonement. They would lay that lamb in the hand of God, And they would step back to signify that that which I have given to God is no longer mine. Then the head of the household, with all of the family watching, because they chose the lamb over a two-week period a year prior, they brought it into their home, they named it, they loved it, they cared for it. It was a family pet. It lived among them. They offered that lamb. They laid it in the hand of God. They stepped back with all the family watching this lamb that they loved. The head of the home would come with the knife. And would stretch his hand across the throat of the lamb as the priest held the head uh, and then stood there to catch the blood and would cut the animal's throat, humanely. He would catch the blood. The priest then would take over, would take the animal, would, dis- would, would take care of its preparation, would lay it on the altar and sacrifice, would sprinkle the blood on the horns of the altar. Once a year, uh, the family made that sacrifice, And once a year, the high priest would then go, uh, and take a sacrifice and go into the Holy of Holies. And so you walk in, there's the altar, there's the, 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 uh, uh, the labor. Then there's another tent that's rectangular that actually is covered on the top. It's not open air like the rest of it. And when you walked in, <coughs> on the right hand side was the table of showbread. On that table were twelve loaves of bread. Uh, it was unleavened bread. Uh, it represented uh, it represented God's provision. On top of that was a little vial of oil, and that oil represented the moving, the blessing of God, uh, and ultimately the coming of the Holy Spirit. On the left-hand side was what it was referred to most often in Scripture as uh, as the as the lampstand or the candlestick. Uh, there were no wax candles in that day and age. That the the menorah had uh, knobs on the top to fill oil in, and the oil burned. And directly in front of that was the altar of incense. The altar of incense, the priest would come in daily. They would change out the bread uh, with the appointed time. Uh, They would fill up the oil in the lampstand. They would go to the altar of incense and made sure that the fire continued to burn uh, and that the incense came. And as the incense rose, the smoke poured over the curtain that was directly behind it into the room that was known as the Holy of Holies. And it signified the prayers of God's people rising up to God. and carrying over into God's presence. And in that room was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant uh, was a place where, uh, as I said, only the high priest entered once a year, uh, and he offered first an atonement for the sins of his family, and then he offered once a year an atonement for the sins of all of Israel. And that provided temporary forgiveness for the nation for the year until Jesus came and fulfilled fulfilled that for all eternity. He died once for all to fulfill the work and the the ceremonial law. Uh, And so that is the picture of what's going on here. So the Philistines have taken the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, the symbol of uh, the reception of God's, God receiving the forgiveness and granting the atonement for their sin for another year, it's been taken and it's been sitting at this man, Obed Edom's home. Now, David goes, he's got a burning desire to get it. He goes to get it. He does not follow biblical procedure. The Ark of the Covenant was so holy that it was not permitted to be touched by man's hand. It was created, it was made, it was sanctified. God's presence came upon it. And from that moment, it was not to be touched. It had rings on the corners. They had staves that were overlaid in gold as the ark was overlaid in gold. Uh, And they would put the staves through and the Levites would carry it. Only the Levites could carry it. It had to be carried by hand uh, with the staves. It was not to be carried and transported by wagon. And so David goes with Levites and he puts it on a wagon. And as they're bringing it in, the the ark shakes on the wagon and it's going to fall and a man named Uzzah, a Levite stretches his hand out to steady it, to keep it from falling and God immediately kills him. Now I said that seems harsh. Well, they knew the procedure, they knew the significance, they knew what it meant and how God had commanded and they, with good intentions, circumvented God's instruction. Now let that statement sink in for a minute. Because how often do we in our lives today circumvent God's instruction with good intentions and expect God's blessing? And it just doesn't work that way. If I want God's power and blessing on my life, if I want my life to matter, if I want my life to make an impact on the lives of those around me, then I must come to the conclusion that I must enter this place, I must enter my place of worship in my home with a passionate faith, with a prepared heart, so that I can then rejoice and praise God for what he has done. And if I'm going to do that, I have to do things God's way. So David leaves it there. He actually uh, expresses some frustration and anger at God for killing Uzzah, a good man. Uh, And so, uh, but again, uh, God's not the one that's at fault. Uh, and so he goes back and then he learns about three or four months later, if my memory serves correctly, that that this man, Obed-Edom, is being incredibly blessed because he is caring for the Ark of the Covenant. And David says, okay, maybe it's time. And this time they go back. And this is where our text picked up this morning in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, uh, where they are going back now to get the Ark of the Covenant, only this time David decides that it might be a good idea to do things God's way. And so David sets out to do things in God's way and in God's order. And so it starts there in chapter 15 and David made him houses in the city of David in verse one and prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched for it a tent. Now it doesn't say specifically that it's the tabernacle, but the tabernacle until the building of Solomon's temple is the only legitimate place of worship that they have. And so my personal assumption here is that it's the tabernacle, though I cannot biblically prove it. And so, at any rate, there's a tent, it's set up there. Then David said, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for them hath God chosen to carry the ark of God, to minister unto him forever. And David gathered all Israel together to Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord into the place which he had prepared for it. And David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites And the sons of Kohath, Uriel the chief and his brethren, and 120, and he lays out who all is there and their responsibilities and what they're going to do. And so the priests, in verse 14, the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of God out of Israel. You understand what we're seeing here? There's preparation. Remember the principles from Abraham in Genesis 22. There is a passionate faith that is motivating him and driving him to restore worship in his palace and in his city. That passionate faith then requires preparation. They prepared the staves, they prepared the people, they called everyone together in assembly. They were ready to uh, to lift up and worship God. So that begs the question: What is worship? Now, worship, by definition, as he is bringing this in, because we're about to see what worship looks like as they as the ark makes its entry back into the city. And so the word worship means to adore. Now, I'm going to give you more to the definition, but it all comes back to that concept, adoration. I, we adore. I remember as a teenager, uh, we would sing uh, a song about Uh, You know, Jesus, we adore you, lay our lives before you. uh, And then we kind of sing it around. Everybody start kind of at different times and go to Jesus, then go to the Spirit, then go to the Father. Uh, And we just kind of sing. uh, But it was, we adore you. Adoration. To worship is to adore. I mean, you can really cut it to that, uh, make it that simple. But there's a little more to it, and I'm going to give that to you. It means to pay divine honors to. It also means to reverence with with supreme respect and veneration. To reverence with supreme respect and veneration. The word veneration simply means is, is the highest degree of respect and reverence that can be given. So he's making Webster here is making a point that this is not a casual reverence, this is not a simple reverence. This is veneration. This is the ultimate highest form of respect and reverence that I can show. And then he finishes the definition this way. It is respect mingled with some degree of awe. So when I worship God, I come to express to him that I adore him. I had someone explain one time some things about a, a couple of songs. Actually, they explained it to their mom. They were <coughs> they, they were, not everything that they used I would use or would agree with, uh, but I understood the principle that he was trying to convey. He says, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, what people do is they sing songs about God, but at our church we sing songs more to God. I think both are appropriate. I think it's right and honoring to the Lord for us to sing about His holiness and about His grace. But I also believe it's correct for us to express directly to Him our adoration and our love and our commitment. And so when we speak of worship, we're talking about respect mingled with some degree of awe. Do I stand this morning in awe of God? Now here's the here's so pastor, I don't understand how I would I would get there. If I don't understand that, that means that I've never seen God. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see what happens to someone who sees God. When Isaiah comes in, sees the vision of God on his throne, and immediately his response is to fall down on his face and cry as he sees the holiness and the power of God. Oh, woe is me, I am undone. Awe. Oh. Re- legitimate Bible worship requires that I have seen God and I have experienced God to the point that when I lift up my voice. To him, that I stand and adoring him because of what he's done for me and how he's loved me and how he sacrificed for me. But that adoration is not casual and it's not familiar. There is some awe involved in it. Now, he's our Heavenly Father. There should be some casual familiarity in our conversation with him. But understand that when we talk about worship, we are talking about a worship, a reverence, a holding him. Uh, God, I adore you and I stand in awe of you and who you are and what you are and what you represent. Now, the word praise we see in in basically two primary uses. First, as a noun. If I'm using the word praise uh, as my noun, then what I'm talking about is commendation that is bestowed upon a person for his personal virtues or worthy actions, so if I'm going to offer praise in that sense, I am I am uh, making note of and bestowing on a person for his personal virtues and worthy actions, uh, or on meritorious actions uh, themselves, or on anything valuable. So I'm saying, okay, God, you're valuable. And I use it in that term uh, again, and it says, uh, "In the by definition, by Mr. Webster, approbation expressed in words or song. Approbation simply means approval and acceptance. So when I use that term, what I'm saying is, is that when I praise God in this sense, that I that my songs, that my testimony, that my recognition of Him is an approbation." of my faith, my love, my worship of him. In other words, God, I recognize who you are and what your commands are, and I agree with them, and I will commit to obey them and I'm singing, and I'm testifying, and I'm praising you. That's what true worship coming together with God's people and God's place is. It's us coming together, a unified body, as we lift up praise to our God because we recognize who and what He is, because we stand in awe of Him, because we love Him for all that He's done, and we hold Him up to the high level and pedestal that He belongs upon, and we express that in song, but we're not just expressing, God, you are wonderful and you are powerful, you are great we are signaling we are submitted and surrendered to you as our God as our king and we will obey what you put in our hearts to do that's worship that's praise praise as a verb means to commend or to applaud it means to extol in words or song to magnify to glorify on account of perfections or excellent works it is to do honor and to display the excellence of who and what God is. Now, we see that demonstrated to us in Psalm 145. Now, I'm not going to take, I don't think, time to read the whole, the whole psalm. It's about 21 verses, but I'm going to read uh, maybe about a third of it. In um, verse number one, I will extol thee, my God, O king, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. What are we doing? We are. Um, this is a Bible example of praise being given to God for who and what he is. Great is the Lord. And, or he says in verse two, every day will I bless thee and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is is unsearchable uh, and then it carries on to the transcending generations verse number eight says the lord is gracious and full of compassion slow to anger and of great mercy the lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. Verse number 17, continues, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked Will he destroy? What are we doing here? We are praising God. We are commending. We are applauding uh, his perfection, his excellent works. We are doing honor to what he has done and who he is and its excellence because he is worthy and deserves it. And so understanding now the concept of Bible worship and praise, let's consider now from uh, this text. Now I'm going to jump around a little bit in chapter 15 and 16 rather than just kind of typically going down in order because I think uh, they're giving us a different account, different things as they happen. Uh, there's, There's a reaction when they come into the city. There's a continuation when we get into chapter number 16. So, I want you to jump over to chapter 16 for just a moment uh, and look there at verse number 23. Sing unto the Lord, all the earth. They're already in the city. Michael has already expressed her disgust at her husband. Uh, Sing unto the Lord, all the earth. Show forth from day to day his salvation. Declare his glory among the heathen, his marvelous works among all nations. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are. Are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Glory and honor are in His presence. Strength and gladness are in His place. Give to the Lord, ye kindreds of the people. Given to the Lord, glory and strength. Given to the Lord, the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now God is holy. He's not saying here. Come and worship God's holiness. That's implied by the whole concept of worship. I'm worshiping him because he is holy. Worship him in the beauty of holiness. In other words, have a passionate faith with a prepared heart and hands so that we are holy to offer worship to the Holy One. Worship him in the beauty of holiness, in the beauty of a heart and a spirit and a mind that is connected with and in fellowship with and right with God. And so he conveys powerfully what God and how worship should take place. Now, let's consider this morning, and we've read the text here, and we'll just make reference to it. Uh, number one this morning, the motive for worship. What is the motive? for worship okay why is David so passionate why does he want to return the ark why uh, is he assembling all the people and I say that first off this morning in verse number 29 give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name why worship what is the motive of worship it is to glorify God to give glory to God our motive for worshiping him Is not to get from Him. It is not to glean from Him. It is not because we are in a state of desperation. It is not because we are at our wit's end and there's no one else to turn to. The the, the reality is, is that whether I am under attack, whether I'm broke, whether my bills are paid, whether I'm homeless under a bridge, no matter what my condition and my state, God is worthy to be worshiped and to be glorified. What is my motive for worship this morning? It is to give glory to God. Now, he tells us here how to do that. What actions do I take? Now, I I didn't really get into this when we got into the introduction like I did last week during the message. But we can do all of the things of worship and not worship. We can go through all of the motions of worship. Last week we went and we looked at Isaiah chapter 1 and we considered how they were doing everything by the letter, how God had instructed them through Moses to worship, but God was rejecting their worship. What I'm talking about this morning is a worship and a praise that not only is following the the concept of what the Bible says it should look like, but it's done with a pure and a proper holy heart. Because without that... It's just a list of deeds done that have no meaning and are not accepted by God in heaven. So don't confuse this with, okay, if I do these things, then I'm worshiping because you can do these things all day long. But if you have sin in your life and your fellowship with God is broken, then you cannot and will not be heard, nor will your glorifying of God and your praise and worship be accepted. Now, The motive for worship is to give glory to God. Now, how does that manifest itself? Consider here what he says in verse number twenty: "Give unto the Lord, verse twenty-nine, the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering, and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness." Now, there's some concepts here that I'm just going to brief move through briefly for sake of time. Bring an offering. There, there's, you know, immediately in our mind is, oh, there goes that preacher again. He's talking about the offering. Bringing offering here is not only talking about a financial gift; it is talking about bringing what God the the, the the sacrifice and the offerings of God are a broken a a broken a contrite heart and spirit that God will not despise. It's more. Than just the financial side of things. So what I'm saying is bring an offering. Now three thoughts about an offering just to kind of tell you what I'm talking about here. First there's an offering of praise. I am offering praise to God. There's an offering of my praise to Him. There is, and understand sometimes what I'm praising Him for is bringing me through a very hard time in life. It could be that my praise cost me a great sacrifice it is a sacrifice of praise i used to have a hard time understanding that concept but it it is something when god has cared for me has loved me has seen me through what he's asking here is an offering of praise lord i i praise you who you are, what you've done for me, how you show yourself strong and mighty in my life. Then there's the sacrifice of self. We see that in Romans chapter 1 and uh, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore uh, that we present our bodies a living sacrifice. God wants our lives a living sacrifice. I'm glad that he does not require a blood sacrifice from us. Because Jesus was the ultimate blood sacrifice that paid for our sin debt. And so we see here a sacrifice of self. Then thirdly we see a gift of the Holy Spirit's prompting. Uh, Other things that I give, anything else that I might offer. Now there's a biblical example of what I should give financially. But beyond that uh, I should give. I should give of my time. I should give of my effort. I should give uh, of uh, all those other at the prompting of the Holy Spirit of God. If you're here, you see a need, you hear a need, whether it be to come and help fix something or whether it be to provide the resources to fix something else or to accomplish something or uh, to be a part of this ministry or that ministry or to go out and share the gospel with others around us, what are we doing? It is a gift of the Holy Spirit's prompting and the command of the Word of God. Some things the Bible clearly commands. We should obey them. The ones that He don't, when the Holy Spirit stirs our heart, touches our heart and lays it on our heart to do something, we should be obedient to that. So, to give glory to God, bring an offering. Then secondly, to rejoice at God's presence. The, the motive for worship, to give glory to God. And then secondly, to rejoice in God's presence. Notice verse number 27, 1 Chronicles chapter number 16. Glory and honor are in His presence. Strength and gladness are in His place. The Christian life, though it sometimes can be hard, should not be a life that is marked and defined by misery and hatred. It should be a life that is marked by joy in His presence. And when I'm in His presence I can have joy even in hard times. Rejoice in God's presence. If God is with me nothing else matters. The Apostle Paul said it this way, I have learned how to abound and how to be abased. I've learned that whether I'm in a prison cell or I'm being shipwrecked or I'm being beaten or whether I'm eating until my heart and my stomach are content to love, to worship, and to praise and to serve my God. Circumstances matter not. Presence of God is all that matters. The motive for worship, to give glory to God and to rejoice in God's presence. Then secondly, the method of worship. The method of worship. What is the outward expression the outward expression, and we're going to look back at chapter number 15 here, because this is David is coming into, uh, into and bringing the ark in. So David and the elders of Israel, in verse number 25, uh, and the captains over thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the house of Obed-Edom with joy. Notice they brought it with joy. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves when we come into the uh, front of the church house that we should be coming into this place with Joy. The pastor, you don't know what kind of week I've had. Leave it out there. Come in here with joy. Give it to the Lord and come in with a heart prepared and ready to serve and to worship God. Uh, And so uh, the method of worship. And so they came with, uh, with joy. Uh, And so as they did that in verse 26, and it came to pass when God helped the Levites that bear the Ark of the Covenant that they offered seven bullocks and rams. There's your offering. And David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, and all the Levites that bear the Ark, and the singers, and the uh, chenina, the master of the song with the singers, David also had upon him an ephod of linen. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the cornet and with trumpets and with cymbals, making noise with psalteries and harps. Now, several things here. The outward expression of worship. First, I would say that David followed God's plan. David followed God's plan. He didn't the first time, but the second time he got the staves, he got the Levites set in order. They handled things correctly. Secondly, we see that David dressed for the occasion. Verse number 27, he did not go dressed for battle. He went dressed appropriately to be in the presence of God. Now, I'm not saying this morning that everybody that comes to church needs to dress exactly like the pastor dresses. I'm saying uh, that, that we ought to dress appropriately to the event and to the place to which we are going. Uh, I would dress differently uh, to go have lunch with maybe uh, someone that was a wealthy businessman that wanted to help invest in the ministry than I would uh, to just uh, go to a casual lunch uh, maybe with a, a staff member or a meeting or, uh, or or to go do something else. There are certain things that casual is appropriate and there are certain things that the position and the presence of the person to whom I come merit that I show them reverence and respect by how I present myself to them. David dressed for the occasion. Thirdly, I would say this, that there is a loud public singing and shouting. Notice verse number 28. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the cornet and trumpets and with cymbals and making noise with psalteries and harps. Worship was not subdued and quiet. I think one of the great tragedies of uh, of our Baptist faith is that we've kind of got the mindset that when we come into the church house, we're supposed to be all pious and sit on our hands. Now, as fundamentalists, we're not generally as bad uh, as the Presbyterians can be, uh, but but we're so afraid of being called Pentecostal that we let the pendulum swing the other way. Sometimes it's personality. Sometimes my personality is subdued. I have I have uh, the unintended consequence of my personality upon our church is that it quietens us when we should be louder than we are. It is right. It is godly. It is appropriate. It is worship to say amen, to shout hallelujah, to give glory to God, to raise the hand, to clap, and to do all kinds of things when God stirs the heart to show God, you are speaking to me and I am responding to you. And so, what happens here? They're coming in, and they are not coming in quietly, they are coming in loudly. Everyone in that city knew that something was going on because their worship could be heard. Now, I'm not for contrived, trumped-up emotionalism that's just kind of a a program geared to get everybody whipped up into a frenzy. That is the feeding of the flesh. It is a tactic of Satan. It is not the moving of the Spirit of God. I don't care what kind of Christian label is slapped upon it. Satan always works from the outside in and the Holy Spirit of God always works from the inside out. And what we should be is coming, recognizing who God is, adoring him and as he speaks to our heart that we're not afraid to just let it out. For some people that may be the nodding of a head. For some people that might be the clapping of a hand. For some people it might be the raising of a hand. For others it might be the yelling of an amen. For some it might even be uh, the standing up and raising their hands and saying praise the Lord as they sit back down. I'm not trying to trump up anybody or or, or try to get anyone to do anything that God is not a response to what God is doing in your heart. But I'm saying that true Bible worship has an outward manifestation. It may be a tear running down the cheek. It will manifest itself in some way in our hearts and lives. And to suppress it when the spirit of God works is the wrong response. It is stifling God working in our heart. And so they come up. And David uh, dances about, and they, uh, and we're going to deal with that word here in just a moment, but he dressed for the occasion. There was a loud public singing and shouting, uh, and let's just deal with that. Notice that verse number 29, uh, he said, it came to pass, as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looking out at the window, saw King David dancing and playing, and she despised him in her heart. Now, what does that word mean? Because that word does not mean the sensual shaking of the body and, uh, and sensual motion like is done in our culture today. It comes from the word raw cod, uh, and it means, uh, that's what the word that's translated into dance, and it means simply this, there is leaping and skipping about. Some would say that David whirled about. I, I, I would equate it to this. I was trying to think, how can how can I put this in a picture that, that we'll get? so. I, and this is what comes to mind. I watched a little bit of a preseason football game last night. And a couple of players that are like third stringers made a big play. And they ran across the field and they did the jump in the air and bump chests with each other. And, or they came out and they did one of these numbers. You know, they're, they're third string players trying to make a team. And they, ju- they act like they just won the Super Bowl. That's what David was doing. He was excited. He was staying close to the ark. They were singing and they were shouting and praising God. And he was running about the ark to skip about. He could not walk. I I remember, uh, well, we had Jules and... Brooklyn, our granddaughters, were at our house this weekend. Uh, and and even last night, Brother David and Miss Adriana got home last night. Uh, they, uh, I just, you watch them go and Jules is three uh, and she's got the long blonde hair and she she doesn't walk anywhere when she's happy. She ran from room to room with the hair flowing. She kind of had a bounce and a skip in her step. Some of her uh, of her aunts and uncles had that same kind of a reaction when they were young. Uh, they just, when they were happy, there was a skip. There was a run. Uh, there was some, there, there was evidence that there was joy in their heart and in their life and that everything that was, was right and in tune with God and that's what the word means when it talks about David dancing and Michael despised it. You think about that. Michael, the daughter of Saul, but David's wife, despised the fact that her husband was worshiping God. Not everybody in your life, not everyone in your family will be excited about your newfound faith or your resurgent faith because it changes your life. Now, it also is manifested by testimony and preaching of good wor- of God's works. Notice chapter 16 and verse number 9. Sing unto him, sing songs unto him, talk ye of all his wondrous works. There was a testimony of preaching and good works. How else does it manifest itself? Verses 10 through 12. There was seeking and rejoicing all that God is. Sing unto him, sing psalms unto him, talk ye of his wondrous works, glory ye in his name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. There was a clapping of hands and shouting in Psalm 47. Psalm 47 in verse number 1, he said this, O clap your hands, all ye people, uh, shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Verse 6, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises unto our king. Sing praises for God is the king of all the earth. Sing ye praises with understanding. God reigneth over the heathen, and God sitteth upon the throne of his Holiness, clapping of hands, and shouting, the lifting of hands. Psalm 134 uh, in verse number 2 has manifested this way in Psalm 134 uh, in verse number 2. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless Uh, the Lord. Psalm 134 and verse 2, and then shout amen and hallelujah. And Revelation chapter 19 uh, and verse number 4, it says, and the four and 20 elders and their four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. What I'm saying is, is that true, legitimate worship cannot come in and be contained internally, it must express itself outwardly through singing, through clapping, through the raising of hand, through the saying of amen and consent with what's being preached, through a saying of hallelujah, through the shedding of a tear, through giving glory and praise to God, because what God is doing cannot be contained. And when's the last time that God did something in your life and in your heart that could not be contained? And I didn't look to see who that was, but thank you. Finally, somebody responded. And we ought to come to the place where we come with our hearts prepared and ready and in love with God, the God that we adore, as we stand in awe of Him and lift up our voice in praise and worship to Him. And the motive for our worship is to give glory to God and to rejoice with God's presence. The method is to outwardly express what God is doing in our heart. And thirdly, and lastly this morning, the manifestation of worship. What is it producing? What does it cultivate? What comes about as a result? Well, the first thing we see in Michael, the wicked will reject it. The wicked will reject it, verse number 29, chapter number 15. The wicked reject it. The second thing that we see is that the saints will rejoice. God's people should rejoice when people get saved, God's people should rejoice. Whenever people get baptized, God's people should rejoice whenever someone who has been backslidden away from God comes and gets their life right with God and begins to serve him. God's people should rejoice whenever God's blessing is expressed and poured out upon their life and should not be afraid to stand up and say so. We ought not be ashamed of what God is doing in our heart and life. The wicked will reject it, but saints should rejoice in it. The third thing that happens is that God will be glorified. God will be glorified. Oh, but pastor, it's not very dignified for me to do this or to do that. No, but we need to be a whole lot less worried about being dignified than we are about God being glorified. Amen. Glorify God. Glorify God in song. Glorify God, glorify God in spirit. Glorify God in how we express what God is doing in our life. What's the last thing here that we'll consider that will happen? Is that God's power will fall upon us Realize that this act opens the pathway and the door to the construction of Solomon's temple. It is from here that David expresses the desire uh, to build the temple, or reaff- and reaffirms and uh, and progresses and almost wants to begin. And God won't let him because of his sin and because of his of, of the wars that he's had to fight. But God allows him to make preparation. Again, there's a passionate faith that is preparing hands, that's praising God. Worship. Is your faith this morning passionate? Are your hands and is your heart prepared? Are you praising God? and everything through life should be a series and a pattern in the life of a Christian of not doing Christian deeds but living a life that's passionate for the God whom we adore and the real problem is is that we do not adore the one who gave everything to save our souls as we should and when God is glorified and worshiped and when praise is lifted up to him i believe his power will fall upon us david laid up provision Solomon built a temple. And the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God fell and shone upon it in an undeniable and an unmistakable way. And what I'm looking for as a pastor is for God's presence to settle in a group of people who come together with a unified heart and purpose, who are prepared, who have a passionate faith, that are that come to worship prepared, that go out in the field to serve, prepared, that can come back and rejoice and live praise and honor to the God of our of, of heaven, to the God and the Savior of our lives so that people around us look and see not a people that are dignified but a God that is glorified and lives that have been transformed in an unmistakable and an undeniable way it's not about fancy programs it's about the power of the Holy Spirit of God that is lifted up and that is brought down by the praise and the worship of the Holy One who sits on His throne I would say this in conclusion this morning the true worship and praise is forgetting oneself and focusing fully on God and then responding as His Spirit flows through us as we worship Him. I'll say that one more time. True worship and praise is forgetting oneself and focusing fully on God and responding as His Spirit flows through us as we worship Him. I ask you again this morning, is your faith passionate? Maybe you're here this morning to say, Pastor, I've never trusted Jesus as my Savior. I think maybe I'm getting enough faith to do that. That's the best place to start. That's where it all begins. But what about you, Christian? Pastor, I've got faith. Is it passionate? Well, Pastor, I think that my faith is maybe more passionate than other people I know. Well, that's great, but that's not what I'm really asking. I'm asking, is your faith passionate? I'm asking, is your first response when God says to do something an utter and a complete trust in God to fulfill it and not a hashing out of how can I make this work? Remember Abraham. There is no argument. There is only the belief that Isaac is coming back off the mountain with him. And he got the fire and he chopped the wood and he built the altar and he took out his knife and he stretched it across his son's throat, ready to draw it and to shed his son's blood before Jehovah Jireh said, I have seen to this and I have brought up my sacrifice. And now that I know that your faith is passionate and that your worship is genuine and real, sacrifice this lamb and take your son and bless. The earth, because from Him came Jesus. From Him came salvation. From Him came the fulfillment of all that God had promised. Why? Because one man had a passionate faith. Because one man had a prepared heart. And because one man, when God blessed him, and when God saw to it, when God provided, said, God, I want to stop, and I want to worship, and I want to praise You for all that you've done. Is your faith this morning passionate? Did you come through those doors with heart and hands prepared? And are you willing to stop and to offer praise to God for the things that He does in your life, even if it's in the midst of adversity?